If you would keep your place in 1 Corinthians 15, and then turn back with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 is the, in the first 12 verses, is the account of Jesus' resurrection. And I want to read that as we begin. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Jonah and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Any number of places, Lord, that we might find ourselves in this passage today. A discouraged, a disbelieving, thinking it's just an idle tale that people are clinging to in this desperate world that seems to spin along under its own power, sometimes out of control. Poor people. Insignificant people. And something changes these people. And it changes the world and it's the empty tomb. And may it change by the power of your Holy Spirit our lives here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you are familiar with the story of the superhero Superman. I don't know who your favorite superhero is. If you grew up watching the, uh, what was it, the League of Justice or the Hall of Justice. Remember when they all got together and they tackled the world's problems together and you sort of picked out the one superhero that you liked and you liked to have those kinds of powers. And I guess most people like Superman because he's got a lot of different things that he can do. Clark, Clark Kent. You remember the the reporter for the Daily Planet? And he just kind of bumbles around the city of Metropolis. He's got the black glasses on. He can't seem to ever get the respect that he's wanting from Lois Lane or Jimmy Olsen, the photographer, or or Perry White, who's the editor of the Daily Planet. He just can never seem to, to quite get it right as Clark Kent. But don't let Clark Kent... Find a telephone booth. Because something happens in the telephone booth to Clark Kent. He goes in sort of as the as the bumbling reporter. But but when he comes out, what happens? He's faster than a speeding bullet. 
He's, he, he's stronger than a locomotive. He's able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And if you look up in the sky, you'd say, look, it's a plane. Or it's a bird. No, it's a plane. And then everybody would say what? No, it's Superman. This bumbling sort of reporter steps into a telephone booth, and when he comes out, he's a whole different person. You get this same picture when you read through the Gospels, and you think of the the disciples in the Gospels. As you read through, as we've been doing uh, Mark, they basically are sort of bumbling around. They never quite grasp what Jesus is actually saying. He has to constantly take them aside and say, well, you guys heard this, but this is what I was trying to tell you. And even then, they don't seem to get it a lot of times. They're hungry for power. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the first? And even when Jesus, at his death, needs these 12 friends, his 12 closest friends the most, What do we find out about these twelve men? They all scatter and crawl into dark places. The one that we're aware of, Peter, that sticks around to any distance, he openly disowns even knowing Jesus. But something changed these men. The disciples experienced something that nobody from that point or since that point has ever experienced. Billions of footprints lead into the tomb. But there's only one set of footprints that lead out of the tomb. And for Peter, the empty tomb was something like the telephone booth for Clark Kent. He, he sort of bumbles in. He, he thinks it's an idle tale when the women come and tell him. And he sort of bumbles down to the empty tomb. And when he comes out, you don't see it right away. But buttons begin to pop off of his tunic. And, and underneath this sort of bumbling person becomes a totally transformed person. And how do you account for it? The empty tomb. Previous confusion suddenly turns into clarity. Positions of power turns into a desire to serve. Instead of running away in the face of death, they're embracing a faith in the risen Savior that causes their own death. Spear thrust. Beheading, stoning, and crucifixion. What, what accounts for this kind of change in these men? Peter and the disciples have seen the empty tomb. And there's something very powerful about the empty tomb for the disciples. Next, a a massive transformation takes place in the Apostle Paul, who's writing to the Corinthians. Remember the, the Apostle Paul, he's one of the chief enemies of the church. 
The church is just sort of getting its feet, getting its foundation. And Saul, the Pharisee, comes along and with incredible zeal, he's trying to wipe away sort of with this terrorist activity, the people that are of the way, the Christians. And so he would come and if he would find out that you're of the way, men, women, Children, he would drag you out of your house. And he himself or some other band of terrorists that he brought along with him would kill you on the spot. That's the writer of most of the New Testament. What, do a, what accounts for the kind of change to go from somebody who's interested in massacre to somebody who come, becomes a missionary? Interestingly, just this last week, a bunch of a bunch, uh, quite a few people, but a number of college students and myself and a few others went to uh, this seminar at UNCW. And a man named Dominic Crossan, who is one of the main founders of what's called the Jesus Seminar, was speaking there. And probably quite a few of you have heard of the Jesus Seminar. If you've ever watched the History Channel on something religious, they get a lot of these people on there to tell you something about Jesus. And it typically is very, very far out. Here's one of the descriptions of the people, the Jesus Seminar. Since the first meeting in 1985, the seminar has rejected the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The seminar has rejected the virgin birth, all of the miracles found in the gospel accounts. And over 80% of the teachings normally attributed to Jesus. All of these biblical records have been rejected because the seminar fellows have determined that they are merely legendary. For example, only two words of the Lord's Prayer survive as authentic to Jesus. And those are, Our Father. Well, Dominic Crossan is one of the main cogs in the Jesus Seminar. He's lecturing at UNCW, and he's specifically lecturing on the works of the Apostle Paul. And so he talks quite a few minutes, and then he has this little Q&A, and somebody comes up to the mic and asks them, says, now you've talked about this massive transformation that took place in the life of Paul. How do you account for the transformation? And Dominique Crossan responded this way, and I'm not going to get it down quite right, but he said something like this. We know that there was a tremendous reversal in the life of Paul, but we can't account for the change. Thankfully, we have the words of Apostle Paul right here in 1 Corinthians 15. And he gives his own account for the change. He says, like one abnormally born, Jesus Christ actually appeared to me in the flesh, not in a vision, not in some kind of dream. He came and appeared to me, just like he did to the disciples. The writer of the book of Acts, Luke, records the testimony and the transformation of Paul three times. In that one book, precisely because it's such a tremendous change, people are wondering what could account for the change. Paul blindly bumbling around on this planet 
totally changes when he understands the empty tomb. Next, a similar kind of transformation is part of the historical record of the early church. You see here in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appears to 500 people. And because of the infrastructure of the Roman Empire, word begins to quickly spread. 500 people at the writing of the letter are still alive. Most of them are still alive. You could go and find them and they could account for seeing the risen Christ. And people begin to believe. People by the thousands. And this this thing called the way begins to spread around the Roman Empire. Historian Rodney Clark writes a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he talked about how was it this small little sect coming out of Jerusalem, how were they able to overwhelm the entire Roman Empire inside of 300 years? How is that possible? What were some of the characteristics of the people in this early church movement? And he writes these three things. This is what made the early church Christians remarkably different than the rest of their culture. Number one, during the great epidemics and plagues in the city, Instead of fleeing the city, the Christians would stay in the city. They would care for those who were dying, even if it meant their own death. Number two, when they were heavily persecuted, they did not retaliate with acts of terrorism. They prayed for the people that put them to death. Many times they were put to death while singing about the risen Savior. And number three, it was one of the only institutions that broke down any kind of racial barriers. The Roman Empire began to to have all this diversity in it because of the easy movement. And so you'd have all these different sects in one city. And a church would come in and suddenly they'd find slave and free, Roman and Greek, Jew and Gentile, men and women, they're all coming together underneath this one institution who's claiming Christ as the Savior. What would account for this transformation of the early Christians? Why would you serve to your own death voluntarily? Why would you sing in the face of persecution Why would you begin to build a network of people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation right here on the earth? And the reason is, is because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And so I can now serve to my own death because death has been conquered. This isn't it. This is just the beginning. This is the prelude to the real story. And so I'm now free, because of the empty tomb, to live however God would want me to live. For the early saints, these these people who must have looked like they were just sort of bumbling around in the Roman Empire, they stepped into the empty tomb. And when they captured this picture of the risen Christ, something must have started popping off of their chest. And this new imprint now is underneath them. It's possible that you're here this morning really 
because your spouse wants you to be here. Or are you here because some other family member has sort of drugged you along? You're a skeptic. Okay? Thomas was a skeptic. Peter was a skeptic. He thought it was an idle tale. It's okay to be skeptical. But how do you account for this transformation? What would cause Peter to be so transformed? What would cause Paul to live under this transformation? What would cause the early church to be able to overwhelm the the Roman Empire, the strongest empire the world had known at that point? If you're a believer, has the empty tomb completely reoriented your life? Do your habits reflect those of the early believers? Are you willing to serve To your own loss. Are you willing to sing in the face of persecution? Are you willing to begin now to build racial diversity in your life? If someone to look back on your life just in one generation... Or look back on the life of this church just in one generation. Would they say, this is a group of people that, you know, they just seem to bumble around, but something happened. They encountered the risen Christ and this group of people, you as a person, they were never the same after that. Their whole life had been reoriented around the life that was to come. And so now they were completely free. To live as Christ wanted them to live. Would anybody say that about you? Would anybody say it about me? Would they look back at this church and say, yes, this place was different because of the risen Savior? In 1 Corinthians 15, there's a lot of skepticism in the Greek world about the resurrection. You'll remember when Paul went to Athens. Remember, he's traveling through uh, uh Turkey, Asia Minor, he gets over into uh, Greece and he goes down to Athens and he's in the sort of um, the marketplace and he's just coming along. He's just sort of walking along people and asking them these leading questions and enough people sort of begin to gather around him. They said, well, let's let's have him up where all the, the wise men are and let's let's hear his story. Up in Mars Hill, if you've ever been to Athens, this little knoll that all the the bright people would come around and Paul gets his chance to speak about the gospel in Acts chapter 17. And he begins to unfold. I see that you're a city full of gods. You even have an idol here to the unknown God. And that unknown God, I'm going to make known to you today. And they listen attentively until what point? You remember the point? They're hearing, they're, they're, they're walking into the story, and then Paul reaches this one point, and they go, oh, that can't be. You remember what that point was? The resurrection of Christ. So Paul is talking to the people in Corinth, and they're going, oh, not the resurrection. 
You see, in verse 12 in chapter 15, they're saying he's saying there's some of you here who are saying there's no resurrection. So he spends the whole chapter. You can go home and read it very quickly today. The whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is about the resurrection. And he talks about that for the whole chapter. And I just want to pick up on a few pieces here. Verse 3 and verse 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. You know what first importance means in the Greek? First importance. That's what it means. I mean, this is the first importance. It's not really anything fancy. It's just this is the first thing you've got to know. You, you can't move forward, even when I'm telling you about the resurrection, until you got this part down. So don't move too quickly until you understand this. Verse three, that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures. Before you look at the resurrection, the first thing you need to understand is that Christ died for your sins. You and I are sinners in need of a Savior. Contrary to popular opinion, I want to say this again, because the resurrection means nothing. If you don't understand this, you and I are sinners and we need a savior. Use these terms today that somebody is challenged or they have a disability. If you can't jump very high, what are you? You're vertically challenged. So you get out on a basketball court. And people wouldn't say this about me, but other people on the court, they would say, well, he's vertically challenged or he has a disability. If you can't run very far or very fast, you have a gravitational disability. They come up with these nice terms to make you feel, well, I'm not quite perfect and I've got some challenges. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not saying, well, you've got a little piece that needs to be tinkered with. You're bent in this way. And if we can just straighten you out, he's saying that you and I are sinners. And because of our sin, we're separated from God. And because of that, when God looks on us, we are offensive to the creator of the universe. That is a big, big problem. And Paul is helping the readers say, if you do not understand this piece, you're not going to be able to make sense of anything else. That's why Paul says, our sin is overcome by Jesus' death. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. We don't need a group hug. We don't need therapy. We need a savior. We need somebody to take this sin off of my back. It is a burden and I cannot carry it. And only Christ is able to do that. And it's in accordance with the scriptures. He's just not making something up. He's just not walking into Corinth and saying, well, guess what? I had this experience. 
Well, great. But how do you catalog that experience, Paul? Well, I see it happening all the way back from Genesis to now. It's not something I'm making up. It's something that's been proclaimed all the way back from the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God have to do in order to cover their sin? He had to kill an animal. The first shedding of blood to cover the shame of humanity. At the Passover, you brought in what to your house? A lamb who was to be slain whose blood was going to put, be put over your door. You have all these Old Testament pictures that when Christ comes, you say, yes, I've been ready for that, whether I realized it or not. And Paul's just saying the same thing. Verse 4, Jesus was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You can read all about that in Isaiah 53. On the third day, Jesus swallowed up death. One of the last quotes from Jesus on the cross is, it is finished. He doesn't say, I am finished. He uses an accounting term, like a stamp, that if you had a debt that you couldn't pay and somebody came along and paid it, they would stamp this on your receipt to say, it's been paid in full, to telestai, it's totally Paid for. And Christ in his last last breath says, I've paid for it, world. How do we know he paid for it? I mean, I can say it. But how do you know he paid for it? If you go to Walmart, you buy stuff, and you go out, what do you better have before you get out past the little old lady who's got the little yellow stickers? I mean, she's nice when you come in. Everybody can get a yellow sticker. But she was a bouncer in the former life or something, right? Because she will take you out if you don't have what? You've got to have your receipt or you're not getting through this door. What's our receipt? How do we know it's been paid for? The resurrection. That's the Christian's receipt to say, yes, we love the cross, but without the receipt of the resurrection, we'd all be saying here, are we sure He overcame death? How can we be positive if it was just a dream to the disciples? If they just thought about it somehow? We need a body to come out of the grave so that when you go to it, you can say, I'm going to come back out. And Jesus Christ is the receipt to say He did pay for your sin. He did pay for my sin. Paul in... Verses 51 through 58 gives some very exciting things to consider. And I'm just going to mention one of them, but I just want to draw your attention here because this this could be food for conversation as you leave. Behold, I'm telling you a mystery. Doesn't that just grab your attention? Oh, 
I want to know something about this mystery. And Paul's going to tell me something. Something's going to happen. And it's going to be like in a twinkling of an eye. Some trumpet's going to sound. And there's going to be some changes. The perishable body is going to put on the imperishable. The mortal immortality. And then finally, if it's written in your Bible like this, it's a quote from the Old Testament. And it's like Paul is so excited. And this happens several times in the Bible. He just can't say it. When you get very excited about something, what do you have to do? You've got to sing it. And he just sort of gets to this point in verse 55, and he's just saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? And the one thing I just want to draw your attention to is that death has lost its sting. Paul is using a Greek word here that's talking not just about a sting, but a poisonous sting. It's not just getting a little splinter in your hand. It's something that when that stinger goes in, also goes in with it poison. And probably the picture here is an allusion to a scorpion. So the scorpion's tail comes over and it has the stinger and it stings you. But then it injects a poison into your system. And you could die from this. I grew up in uh, Oklahoma when I was in third grade through the sixth grade. And when you're eight to twelve, I guess, what you do when you live in Oklahoma, since there's not a lot to do when you live in Oklahoma, is you turn over rocks and you look for snakes and scorpions and stuff. That's what you do. And so I turn over all these rocks. I just go out on a Saturday up in this little area and I turn over there all these rocks. You'd find snakes and scorpions. You'd try to bring them home. Your mom would be real excited about that kind of thing. Then you throw them in your backyard like that was okay for your mom. And so you have this uh, picture of these scorpions. But when you turn over a rock and you see the scorpion, how big is it? I mean, it's really small. No one has ever died from the stinger of a scorpion. It's no worse than a small splinter. People die from the poison that gets injected. And Paul is saying here, the poison is in the sin of the sting. And because Jesus has come and he's taken the poison out of death. Our death still stings, but it's not poisonous any longer. When people read this passage at a funeral, you're still crying about the person who's passed away, are you not? When I went to my mother's funeral, I was disheartened, to say the least. You might say, I was just undone at some points. But it didn't have the sting. Why? Because of the empty tomb. 
I knew one day my mother with a new body, but one that I would recognize, would come walking out of the grave. And I too would walk out of the grave with her. And together we would see the resurrected Christ. And so the poison of death is no longer for Paul Phillips. And for Patricia Crittenden. And for Morgan Phillips, my parents who have died. The poison has been taken out by Jesus Christ. And He has promised now that we too would come out of the grave with an imperishable body. But if you don't know Christ... And you go to a funeral. Printed on your, the front of your bulletin is a little quote by Sigmund Freud. He says this, And finally, there is the painful riddle of death, for which no remedy at all has yet been found. You're a skeptic. And again, I'm saying that's fine. Everyone was a skeptic at some point. But you come to a funeral, and what answers do you have? What happens to that person? Is it just a painful riddle, and we just can't quite figure it out? Jesus figured it out. And so, we sing with the Apostle Paul in verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I, when you and I begin to understand this truth, that Jesus Christ in His body came out of the tomb so that Thomas could put his hand on his side or his hand in his hand, when it really begins to work its way in our lives, then what should happen is buttons should start popping off of your chest. And all of this old life that you thought was life should just be shedding off. And underneath, not Superman, but Saint Saved, you understand something that now frees you up to serve at your own death. Because death has lost its sting. Let's pray together. Lord, every one of us are going to come to some kind of service, and it's going to be our own funeral. It may not be in a church. Who knows with this many people where it might be. But somebody's going to stick us in the ground. And for those who know Christ, what a great hope. You have taken away the poison out of the sting of death. 
And our receipt, our guarantee for that happening is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to that end, we are thankful. We now serve, even at our own loss, because this is not the end. Holy Spirit, help us, I pray. As we take the offering, I pray that you would just use these gifts, not only the money, but ourselves, our lives, our time, our talent, to spread this great message, this life-transforming message across the globe, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.